Welcome to Buildings and Beyond. The podcast that explores how we can create a more sustainable built environment. By focusing on efficiency, accessibility, and health. Thanks for joining. I'm Rob Aldrich. This week, I talked with a few other folks at SWA about uh, stuff that we do in our own homes, in our own lives. We consult a lot with building designers, building owners, builders, developers. But we also try to practice what we preach, uh, at least to a degree, as much as we can. So four of us sat down, um, three of us in person, Maureen Molly, Guy 3 J. Kumar, and myself were in person, and Andrea Foss joined us remotely from DC. We each picked a topic um, related to stuff we've tried to do in our own homes, in our own lives. Sometimes things worked, sometimes things didn't work, uh, and we learned what we'll do better next time. Uh, I'll give you a quick outline of the topics in case you want to jump around. Maureen first talked about going all electric, foregoing combustion. Andrea talked about water conservation, especially toilets. Very few podcasts uh, are toilets featured prominently. Uh, I chose to talk about transportation, location, walkability, and Gaia 3 talked about duct sealing. Before we get into the episode, two quick announcements. First, some news about education and training. We at Stephen Winter Associates, also known as SWA, are pleased to announce SWA Academy. It's an online learning platform with content for building design, construction, and operations folks, as well as for students. We've done classroom and in-person training for decades, and this online platform seemed like a great way to help with workforce development one of the industry's biggest challenges, uh, and with training for folks who've been around for a while on some of the new systems, technologies, and practices uh, that we're seeing more and more of in buildings these days. So Academy can also be a very convenient way to get continuing education credits if you need those. Uh, And courses can be customized to fit your organization's education and onboarding needs. Visit swinter.com slash training to learn more. And please let us know what other content you would like to see on SWA Academy. Next, SWA is a proud sponsor of the P3 Higher Education Summit. This is taking place uh, on October 3rd and 4th in Washington, DC. The summit examines campus infrastructure challenges faced by colleges and universities and explores how new approaches to procurement, risk, and asset management are helping campus planners and facility managers. Join over 600 college and university representatives, developers, and design build professionals for two days of project delivery discussions and networking. Check out p3highereducation.com to learn more about the summit and to register. Opportunities for sponsorship are still available at this time uh, in early July 2022. Uh, And you can register with the code SWINTER, S-W-I-N-T-E-R, for $100 off your registration. Now into the episode, first up is Maureen. So my topic is cutting the cord on combustion. And I lived this out through the course of two personal home renovations on two homes that I have owned that were across the street from each other, had the same prior owner, so I bought them both from the same person. Oh, I didn't know that. But we employed two very different strategies, starting one in 2012. The first one was a 2012, 
And then I got my do-over house in 2019. And I had drastically changed my mind about combustion in that time frame. So most of my regrets from the first house, these the first house was built in 1919, the second one is 1924, so similar age, basically like colonials. The first one we did more of a moderate rehab, and so we left the interior in place and gutted from the exterior, which meant that we could we were incentivized to keep combustion for heating because we were reusing our radiators for heat. We did not want to tear the whole thing apart. So I kind of stand by that decision. We got rid of the oil boiler and put in a condensing gas boiler for heat and hot water. Like, that seemed sensible at the time. And then there were two other favorite features of the house that included combustion, which I think are very um, emotional for a lot of people. One was the gas range for cooking, and the second is the gas fireplace. Um, Or having a fireplace at all. Actually, it's wood-burning. Sorry, do-over. The wood-burning fireplace. So I thought I had done both of those things well in the first house, (laughs) and then I realized maybe I hadn't. So what we did for the gas range was we, um, I went and got a, bought it off Craigslist, a 1950s Chambers gas range. So this is like a cult following. If you ever have seen Rachel Ray's cooking show, like before she had the talk show, the old cooking show, and she has this buttercup yellow range with the lift-up broiler, like that's what I had. Beautiful piece of equipment. I thought it was really wonderful from the point of view of embodied carbon because anything you can keep functioning using on a daily basis for 70 years, I'd say is a win for embodied carbon, right? And the second thing is chambers, like their slogan was cooks with the gas turned off. And how they do that is by having four inches or plus of mineral wool insulation around the whole thing. So by the way, I never actually really cooked very much with the gas turned off, but it was still really well insulated. So I thought this was like an energy efficiency thing. This is the oven? This is oh, the, the oven. The, okay. Yeah. The oven in the, right. So it's a combination, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. there's the broiler, the burners, there's a thermal well in that thing, which is like a whole entity unto itself. Um, definitely a cult thing. There's all kinds of websites devoted to chambers range aficionados where people like swap parts and stuff. It's, it's a lifestyle. You're but very excited about this range when you were- When I bought it from, I bought it in, uh, where was it in New Jersey? Maybe Edison, New Jersey. The woman cried when I took it away. <laughs> when I sold it, I also cried. And the guy had to do some work on it because it tipped over on his trailer. He drove up from Virginia to buy it from me. And he um, actually just sent me a picture about two months ago when uh, they finally got it installed. And my combustion concerns aside, I was so pleased to see <laughs> it being loved and used now 70-something years into its life, right? I think that's, that's pretty cool. However, <laughs> I started to change my mind about it um, in two ways. One was when we would, I got much more conscious about using the range hood all the time when I cooked, including when I baked. I always used it when I fried, but I didn't use it when I baked. So you bake something for like an hour and a half or whatever. Now you're running your range hood the whole time. And we realized that our house was becoming really negative. The house was tight, but it wasn't that tight. It was like two and a half air changers per hour at minus 50 pascals. Like not nothing, maybe 2.6, nothing super crazy, but a little bit tight. Oh, and that's measured. It was actually looser than that because that's measured with the blower door in the front door, which had a mail slot in it. So, I mean, it was it was leakier than 2.6 <laughs> in practice. <laughs> However, it like, 
we were getting really negative and we were smelling occasionally the fireplace. Mm. So related issue. So our workaround was to put in a fresh air makeup damper behind the range, tied to the range hood. So that would open up, motorized damper would open up whenever we turned the range hood on. So we were not getting so negative. Because we found we were running at like minus 11 pascals relative to outside, pulling only like 100 CFM on the range hood. So it was like, oops, this is not. That's pretty tight. Yeah, that's fairly tight. It was, I didn't think the house was tight enough to get that negative. And so this was a concern for me. So put in this fresh air damper. So you're standing there frying your eggs, freezing your toes off because (laughs) you've got now this like in December draft of cold air, but you're getting better air quality. The second thing that was concerning me was Rob, when you won an indoor air quality monitor, I think, at a conference or something. Oh, okay. And I brought it home and started watching this thing, like, glow bright red whenever (laughs) I was cooking. At times when I wouldn't have expected it to be going off and how long it stayed activated because it was sensing particulates and whatnot in the air. And I was like, oh... Maybe my gas range is not so good for me. And then we introduced a baby to the house, and it was like I got I got more worried. But I wasn't fully on board with switching to induction. Even when we started thinking about the new house and planning for that renovation, we were like, oh, we're definitely going to do it all electric, but maybe I can bring this chamber's range with me and put it on a propane tank because you can convert those to propane. Yep. I was seriously considering that. For a long time. I would have been shocked if you hadn't mm-hmm. seriously considered that. I was in love with this range. I, I really yeah. was, as many people are. So not only what did I like, was I in love with gas cooking, I was also like in love with this particular piece of equipment and the history and the, you know, everything about it. But what I will say about that is I have switched to induction. I did pay like approximately $2,000 extra dollars to get the induction range with the knobs that turn rather than the buttons. Because that was a personal preference that I could not quite let go of. <laughs> that's um, that's a huge premium for knobs. That that wasn't Rob for for a daily <laughs> pleasure. <laughs> What's the know? price of happiness, Rob? <laughs> Touche. What is the price of happiness exactly? Um, that's our next episode. Also, when you consider the you know emotional weight of giving up my chambers, uh, yeah, it's no, like, every, you, anything, you got to just throw money at that problem, really. So, but the pleasure of cooking with induction and having the smooth top and all the rest of it, Guy 3, you cook with induction too. Yes. I am obviously not in love with cooking at all, so I can't relate to the love of the chambers, but I do agree with the indoor air quality concerns and the scares. So the second I was ready to get rid of my gas stove, I was ready. Went straight to induction. I don't care about buttons. Well, it has push buttons, right? They just beep. It doesn't bother me. Very simple. Easy swap, had to get the extra special outlet, and that was it. But we don't have, a, in my house, my house is just a code-compliant house from, the, from 2008. And so it was initially propane. We actually converted it to gas because back then in 2010 when we started living in it, that was a, that was a cheaper way to go. You're going to save money by switching to natural gas. So paid $10,000 to run a natural gas line to the house, at least smart enough to put in a heat pump as our backup um, so slowly could get off of combustion one day. But yeah, that gas stove, we could smell it. We didn't have a vented range hood. Still don't have a vented range hood. We just have a recirculating range hood. And it's just really challenging to retrofit it. I'm not ready to do, you're my aspirational goal, Mo, trying to renovate all these houses that you have. But we just live in our code compliant home and kind of make do with what we have. But I like the induction stove. Boils water, 
really, really fast. But, but like 10, 10 or 12 years ago, going to gas was the responsible option. I mean, I switched from oil to gas, I think it was like 12 years ago. And like heat pumps were, yeah, they were there, but there wasn't this major push to electrify. I mean, switching to gas was the in- responsible thing to do not that long ago. And here we are with the electrify everything. I know. Isn't it funny? I was looking through old emails from like the late, what, what like early, early, late early aughts. What, what, what is that decade? 2008, 2009, that time frame. And the recommendations that we were making to clients was you should consider gas dryers. You're, you know, you should consider these gas appliances. Right. They're going to be more efficient. And I was like, oh my gosh, what a horrible, like, recommendations that we were making and now here we are so you know we're all we're all learning together yeah (laughs) but I, I think some of people's top concerns about cutting the cord on combustion now we've got the heat pumps I think have convinced most people not everyone but but a lot of people but it's the cooking and maybe the fireplace that people are just like much more reluctant to give up on. So I'll, I'll talk about the fireplace for a second. Because this was one of the biggest splurges we made in the first house was we um, fully lined the chimney. And then we got the uh, really supposedly very efficient wood burning insert. It was a quadrifier, you know, they claimed to burn the smoke four times or some such thing, right? But it was supposed and, and one log would last like a really long time, right? So it was like a more efficient way to to have a wood-burning fireplace. Did we it have also, an outdoor air duct? It did not have an outdoor air duct. Okay. Um, no, it did not. Okay. And, and we looked into adding that, and it was logistically challenging because yep. of the way the foundation was, and this house was like built on a cliff, and there's a lot of rock in the way. So um, that we did not add the outdoor air duct. But the one of the things that we, we paid money for it being efficient, it was also just... It was a um, beautiful sort of like mahogany enameled thing. So again, an emotional <laughs> purchase, my second emotional purchase. Um, that, and it was just extremely pleasant. We had a very high ceilinged living room. It had these French doors. You could close it in. We called it hot boxing. You know, you'd get it up to about like 80 degrees in the wintertime oh, just in gross. that room. <laughs> so cozy. It was delightful. Did you have to open a window? Why? For it to draft? No. Okay. We did right. not. Nice. We did not need to open a window for it to draft. Um, no, we were, it was working fine. But there was the problem, like I mentioned earlier, where, you know, this is inside the condition envelope of a kind of tight house, yep. not super, nothing crazy, but codish tight house, new yep. codish tight house. And um, just with our, you know, exhaust fans running, the normal kitchen and bathroom exhaust was causing it to be negative enough that we could we could smell the yeah. ash. And especially, again, when you introduced the child to the mix, we were sort of uninterested in having that. I, I, got, I got worried about, like, well, if I'm smelling something, granted, I do have the nose of a bloodhound, but even so, like, if I'm smelling something, like, there's, there's something there, and there's probably a lot of stuff that I'm not smelling, so. It's the opposite of your husband. So, my husband has no sense of smell, but yeah. he does have... The hearing of a bat. Okay. So between the two of us, <laughs> we have most of the senses. Um, so in the new house, what we did, and people are like sort of appalled at this, that you have this nice 
colonial home with a prominently featured fireplace, which we capped the top of the chimney. We foamed in place, you know, some rigid board at the bottom of the chimney, and we put a TV in it. <laughs> so, so you can we put can put the, fire the Yule video. log video yeah. on. I really wanted to get my neighbors have one of these um, things, which I think is so cool. It's kitschy in like a neat way. There's like these tinfoil kind of rollers, and it has sort of a light display. It's a fake fireplace thing, but this tinfoil sort of like rustles against this metal screen and makes like a crackling sound. So, re- and, I mean, regrets? Do you have regrets in going to all electric and foregoing combustion entirely? No, not okay. whatsoever. Right. I think it was an incredibly smart decision. I, I'm sort of aghast that it was so difficult for me. I'm, I think back, especially, especially how I really considered bringing that chambers with me. I was just like, I love this thing. This is coming with me until I, you know, yeah. to the grave, basically. It's yeah. much too heavy to take to the grave. But um, no, I, I was determined that that was going to be. And so it's sort of, with the benefit of hindsight, you're like, that wasn't hard to let go of at all. And and what was super fun was when we actually called the utility to tell them to disconnect the electrical. And the they were gas. sort of like, excuse me, when we called the utility to tell them to disconnect the gas, and they were like, oh, you mean temporarily cap it? And we were like, nope. Totally gone. Don't need it. And then interestingly, my neighbors down the street, Guy 3, that had been on oil, put in a new gas line. Oh, there you <laughs> like, go. Like, the next month or so. It's a step in the right direction. Andrea, you've been all electric for a long time, right? No, we are not all electric. Oh, my mistake. (laughs) I thought I, uh, I thought I remembered that. We were all electric. Well, we were all electric for our, I should say for our heating and cooling and hot water heating, because, you know, again, this, we, we, we did our house started in 2009 and we already had gas. It's an existing house. So we are saving, we, like Maureen said, we have the um, efficiency of ha- keeping our existing house. And we had, uh, we put in gas dryer and a gas stove. And that was it for our gas. Uh, and we had a very early model um, air to water source heat pump that did not ever work. Yeah, there were some early ones that didn't work. Yeah, we had. Um, I had some. I had some showers because I had the benefit of having a lot of uh, testing equipment in my house. Tested the water during a particularly frigid shower to convince our installer that in fact it wasn't working. It was fifty-five degrees <laughs> in January. <laughs> the, that is the water temperature. So this is not going to work for us. <laughs> so Andrea, does paying for the pleasure of having gas? At a certain point, this really adds up when you're getting your loads down. You know, like paying, the, it's the gas service charge that I think has created some of the savings for us being all electric because we would have been using it for such small amounts. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, so we were just kind of in a bind because we had redesigned our whole house. We put our radiant, we have radiant floor heat. We put that on this, we had a, you know, a combined system. And so... Once we realized that it wasn't working, we were kind of in a pinch for how to fix it, and the only equipment and systems that were available were gas. So we very much hope that we can change them back, and we can do go go to an all electric. Um, but we realized that maybe being on 
the bleeding edge, even far and above the cutting edge, was a little too far for us. But I guess how, when we talk to, just before we move on from getting rid of combustion, I mean, that's a tough sell for some developers. Like, people want their gas stoves. And, you know, even if they figure out space heating, water heating, and dryers, they'll put in gas expressly for gas ranges sometimes yeah. in buildings. And and I've, I've certainly worked with developers who, who get it. They try air source heat pumps. Like, oh my God, these things work great. I'm going to electrify all my future projects. But that's not the norm yet. I mean, are, are we... Are, we seeing that before we move on with clients? I think people are starting to get it, but I think it is going to change because there is an influencer movement about that. I okay. think the professional chefs think induction is fantastic. Okay. And we have people who are so into food right now and want to sort of mimic the professionals. And there are different entities putting together, you know, kind of influencer videos about induction cooking. But I don't think people are going to go from... Um, I don't think people are going to go from gas ranges to electric ranges. I think they're going to go to induction. For the for the person who considers themselves a gas cook because of the way that gas operates, right? They're going to need something that has some high-performance attributes. And so I think induction has that in a way that most electric, you know, might not. So I think it's they're leapfrogging a standard electric. But I don't think there's anything wrong with a standard electric stove, Either. I mean, it's what I grew up cooking on. It's just a lot less fun. Yeah, I mean, I'm looking, so I, I, while we were talking, I was looking up some, just some quick stats. Consumer Reports said they looked at, you know, they always compare a whole bunch of different products, and they were looking at a bunch of different electric ranges, and this didn't include induction because, you know, they're, they're still saying that induction, and this doesn't include the, the coil ones, those old electric coil ones. They said, in most cases, electric ranges outperform gas counterparts across their rating criteria for high heat, low heat, baking, broiling, etc. So I think that some of the this idea that gas cooking is better sometimes may just be marketing. And I, I've, I've read that and heard that, that, that a lot of the original influencer, like on the gas side, was was really more paid for by the gas industry than it was for people actually preferring it. And so it, it's important to kind of understand like what actually is working better for you. And then I've, I've also been in some affordable housing meetings and uh, folks have said that gas is seen more as like an equity issue and also as like a, a step up from their current, uh. from current conditions. And that because gas is seen as, you know, like the the best option, you know, like granite countertops, those kinds of things, you know, like it's maybe not necessarily better, but it because the rest of the the industry is striving towards that, then that's what folks want. Interesting. Yeah, I think I'm seeing a break sometimes where I don't know that the industry like ten years ago the industry definitely was going there. And now I definitely I see not all the industry is going there. A lot of the industry sees the advantages of all electric. Yeah. Well, in terms of the performance side of it, I think because the smooth top are just so much easier to keep clean, I think a lot uh, of the performance issues with gas are because who wants to clean all the little holes after something has, you know, boiled over on it, whatever. Like there's The reason I liked gas, I have gas now, but I grew up with electric. The reason I like gas now is I can see the flame. 
And I know how hot it is. I just have, other than this, and I grew up with the coils, and my parents still have the coils, and it's, it's a pain in the ass. But my next range will be induction, for sure. I heard that there is an induction that has some type of a visual fake flame, but I haven't seen it yet. Yes. Yeah. Oh, that's a yeah. great idea. That varies with the yeah. the intent, the setting yeah. of the knob or the button, as the case may be. Right. I'm right, clearly not a cook because none of this is <laughs> appealing to me. <laughs> all right, all right, we're moving on. We're way over time. Next is Andrea. Toilets. I'm gonna set my timer. I'm going all 15 right. minutes. So, in some circles, before I knew all of you, I think Maureen knew me as the toilet lady. (laughs) (laughs) Slightly. Before before I even worked at Stephen Warner Associates. um, So, uh, my husband and I did our first home renovation. I I don't have an exact date because it lasted for years, and in many ways it's still ongoing. It was, you know, the, the heavy work of it was probably over three years, but we bought the house in 2010. And one of the, we had many issues with many of the systems, probably one of our favorite products that we found were single flush toilets that are 0.8 gallons per flush. And that's even low for, by today's standards, but for what, 12 years ago, that was very low. So everybody said, they're not going to work. They're not going to work. And we did some research that, you know, they seem to have great ratings and then we've uh, we found that they had a six pack for sale, bulk rate. We're like, all right, we're buying six. We only <laughs> needed four. <laughs> we only needed four. And so then began us being the like toilet resellers because everywhere we went, we were talking to people and seeing who wanted to buy a toilet oh, from geez. us. <laughs> I think I sold one to my brother. And I think he was also uh, coincidentally doing a home renovation at the same time. Um, and then also sold one to uh, one of our, our colleagues. But the so fun fact about this this toilet, the Niagara Stealth. In the ten years, it has also come down probably two hundred dollars. So we bought them; they were like three hundred some, and now they're available at big box stores for around a hundred. So great, you know, supply and demand helps bring prices down. But the we saw the same ones installed in our house. They have. Um, I don't think we've ever had a problem with them. The way that they work is a vacuum assist, so they're not loud. Um, our kids can use them. What I have also, as a as a green building consultant, one of my um, we often are trying to train residents, train homeowners, things like that. And one thing I heard somebody say is, I never want to train somebody how to use a toilet. And so, like these dual flush toilets. If you have to talk to somebody about how to use their toilet, how to use your toilet before they go in, it's kind of an awkward conversation. So, yeah. you know, there's only one option. <laughs> I discovered that when my mother comes to my house and uses the dual flush, she presses them both. Well, there you yeah, go. It's dual. Then. It's Is dual. It, like, do you get <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. So, you know, it's so we just started like Somehow, so it was funny because unbeknownst, I, I went away with some girlfriends last weekend and they didn't know I was going to be doing this podcast. And they also brought up the toilets. They were like, yeah, remember when you guys were at a dinner party with my parents and you guys were talking about the toilets? And I was like, funny story. I'm going to be talking about the toilets on the podcast. Uh, so yeah, so that's kind of been our thing. And so since then, we, um, we have a couple rental properties. We've put them in all of the properties. 
we since we saw them on sale at uh, or that the price had come down so much at a big box store we bought three more because we were like sure we need more <laughs> to put in and replace at um at one of our properties and um but you know we these days we're talking a lot about energy about carbon and i think that we often forget how energy intensive water use is right that the there's a lot of energy that goes into water treatment and also just you know all of the resources that it takes to to pump and clean and and filter all of the water so it's really important to be mindful of water use and then another stat that i read um just today is that over 49 percent of the continental u.s is currently in some state of drought and that this was what from percent was that for 49.3% of the lower 48. And this was this is from drought.gov. Didn't hadn't seen that as a as a resource before. And the intro line said this was an improvement over previous weeks. And I thought 49.3% is an improvement. So clearly um you know depending on where I'm sure our listeners come from far and wide, but drought is is a big deal in the U.S. And, and water use is a big deal. So let's ask Mo, how did you not buy this Niagara Stealth toilet <clears throat> and go with dual flush? Well, I, I did both. Okay. So because I care more about appearance <laughs> than I do about performance, when it comes to my own house, not other people's houses, <laughs> um, I live in an extremely colonial house. And took fairly great pains to sort of replicate, like, the trim to match what it was and all of that. And the Niagara Stealth is a very modern-looking toilet. They don't offer it in a sort of, like, more traditional or even neo-traditional styling. Um, But I was like, okay, I still am going to get that one. So I got two of them. Um... And ended up returning one because we did initially have some problems with ours, Andrea. Um, so, the, so the oh, colonial, you should have called us up because you, there's some install tricks. There, you gotta, well, you gotta. it was an adjust. <laughs> it was just an adjustment issue. But it was also one of the locations that we put it is in the toilet that has like the minimum slope possible because we have to like clear this rock ledge situation to get out to the drain line. So um, far away, low slope. We had some clogs. Um, but then we made an adjustment. I think maybe we had it set even lower than point, the point 0.8 or whatever. I, I don't, I'm sorry, I don't remember the details of the adjustment. But there was an adjustment that could be made, and since then it has worked just fine. But based on that, I had already returned the second one that we bought and bought another. <laughs> the, other, the more like colonial styling. The colonial styling one um, is uh, a 0. 0.8, uh, 1.0. So it's not it's pretty good. horribly worse, but it's worse, you know. And like you said, two buttons, which apparently I did not sufficiently, like, train my mother on. She knows now. Um, but I probably should. And I don't like the push buttons either. Sometimes I, you know, people with arthritis, things like that, you know, it's a little more challenging. Small, small people with tiny fingers. So, I did see, because I think you were the one that forwarded to me, that they came, had come out with a whole range of new models. 
Niagara. Put in check because I'm, yes, because yes. I, because clearly I'm like up to my eyeballs in, in toilets already. I don't need any more. <laughs> and they have some that are push button. My, my Niagara is a push button, but they have some that are lever based as well that were mm-hmm. just not available at the time that we put ours in. But that would be what I would go with again for the um, kind of the universal design side of it so that little people and arthritic people and everyone could use them a little bit more easily. Is WaterSense a pretty good spec? I mean, WaterSense, so I think, I looked this up. The federal, like, the maximum, I think, is 1.6 gallons per flush for a toilet. Yes. And I think WaterSense is down, like, 1.3 or something. So it's not, I mean, it's less, but you're talking about 0.8 to 1. Well, WaterSense is not only the low flow, it's also the grams per flush limitation. And I don't know the number on it. I used to refer people all the time to Terry Love's Toilet Consumer Reports. Is that website still around? I have to look it up. Oh, good question. Um, But that would would rate everything, including the grams per flush, which is when they make the like soy poo, and yeah, you know they're flushing golf balls and all kinds of stuff. I know, but like a golf (laughs) ball has got you know, and that's like a totally different animal. Like you need you need something a little more similar to the the real deal. They're so much better than they used to be. I mean, low flush toilets used to to flush them like two or three times. Yeah, ridiculous. Some of them, right? And a lot of people had a bad experience, and now they like you know. Right. Don't want to go back, but I, so I think you got to keep an open mind and trust that these manufacturers are making things better and realize that there are adjustments you can make. Like Andrea says, there's install tricks, and we found that there was just like standard adjustments. You know what I mean? It wasn't like we were fixing anything that was broken. It was just like you could set the levels to this, that, or that, and we, you know, switched it up, and it's been it's been working great. So, so I, I mean, second them. We're in a pretty wet part of the world where we get like forty or fifty inches of rain. All of us. In California, I think people are a lot more aware of right. water consumption. Is that? I mean, we don't work all that much in California, but, but is I know that- where we, where I live in Connecticut, all there was like a year and a half period where we were under a severe water advisory for our local utility, and you wouldn't know it again because it wasn't necessarily that it was like a weather drought; it was like a reservoir issue. Okay. Yeah, and well. Where, where I am in D.C., and I think in a lot of places, water rates are just increasing sharply. And, and maybe this is also especially, um, or I, I don't know the stat on this, but I would imagine in a lot of other East Coast cities where we might have these very old sewer infrastructure that is needing to be replaced. That's a large driver of our increase in in sewer rates here in dc but they're directly proportional you know there's a flat rate but then there's some directly proportional to the amount of water that you use and ours and looking through our in looking through our bills they've gone up nearly 50 percent over a five-year period that's not just because of covid it's not just because of my kids it it is because the rates are going up and when we looked at it our water bill is actually our highest bill and it's almost the same on an annual basis as our combined um, electric and gas. Wow. So like, wow. Your water? Yeah. And we have, we have super high efficiency everything for, for water. We got the toilets, low flow shower heads, Energy Star appliances. Um, so yeah, water, water prices are, are no joke. And it's, I mean, it's the sewer side too. So that's also, you know. Right. Work and energy, I guess. It, I, I'm. I know my. I pay like the minimum charge. I'm. I live. On, I'm on my own. One person, and like the minimum charge is something like thirty-two dollars a month, something like that. And that's what I pay every single month because it's like the minimum. But 
it's not even close. Even, you know, well, actually, that is more than my gas bill in the summertime. Yeah, so ours is <laughs> over 100 right. most most months, and it's pretty steady. Water's and, over 100. Wow. And, yeah, I think, yeah, that, that's what it is currently. So when we looked at it, what it was about five years ago, it was around 70. And of that, almost $50 is just in, like, fees. Yeah. Oh, okay. Right. Okay. Yeah, so all all of the all of the rates are just are are going up. My utility just switched from quarterly water billing to monthly, and I suspect it had to do with same. trying to break. The, yours was the same. Trying to break, but we have different water utilities. Yeah, trying to break it up to be a little more palatable to people to handle the increased wow. rates. Yeah. And ours is the same. So I live in New Haven, Connecticut, and I have the same situation where I think my annual water and sewer is more than my natural gas. So natural gas in my house is just for space heating and our tankless hot water. So we don't have, we have energy shower appliances. So energy shower clothes washer, dishwasher, we have low flow for our faucets and our shower heads, but we don't have special toilets, right? So you guys did the right thing. You renovated your houses. I bought a code compliant house in 2010, didn't renovate it. So all the toilets were that federal minimum 1.6 gallons per flush. And so like I just mine did, was like three when I bought my oh, house. Wow. I mean, that this An is, old toilet. Yeah, oh, old toilets yeah. are really bad. Yeah. So mine was 1.6. So there, it didn't make sense to replace them. They were brand new. Uh, didn't make sense to replace them. So I just did the old school trick where you take a liter bottle, submerge it in the tank, and now it's, you know, maybe it's 1.3 gallons per flush instead of 1.6. Cost me like next to nothing. So, and it works pretty well. It's still single flush to Andrea's point, like easy to use um, as long as it doesn't get stuck in the flapper and make it drain endlessly. But <laughs> other than that, maybe that's part of the reason why my water bill is high. But usually we cash that you hear it and you fix it. I think my biggest culprit for water is I have a tankless water heater, tankless gas water heater. And I've had, it's old now. It's like, God, it's probably like 15 years old. So my old atmospheric gas water heater went. And I was like, oh man, great. I can, tankless was just coming on. I had done research. We'd done monitoring. These things work pretty well. I got a tankless water heater. I was very excited. And my gas bill went down way more than I thought it would. But I had to like remove aerators from my faucets. Yeah, I remember yeah. Because that. I, yep. Because to get enough flow, they, there has to be enough flow to trigger it. And they've gotten better. They've gotten lower. But again, my next stove is going to be induction. My next water heater will be some kind of heat pump that's going to have a tank so that I don't have on-demand on demand yeah. water heating. And I am guilty of not knowing how much I spend on water, actually. I track the gallons... But like I don't, I don't know what the cost is, and that might be because my my utility bills are sort of nonsense because we are net positive. It's sort of like this annual true up. So like you get a electric bill that says you owe a bunch of money, but you don't really because three you know three months of the year we're buying energy and nine months of the year we're selling it at a very poor rate. But, <laughs> But I should pay more attention so, to my water costs. I mean, so so like WaterSense is a you can shop for WaterSense appliance, WaterSense fixtures. I guess is that a good is that good enough to for people to kind of pick and choose, or are there other kind of ratings or other? I think you still need to look at the individual like okay. gallons per minute, gallons per flush, gallons per cycle when it comes to a dishwasher specs, because just like a an Energy Star refrigerator. They're not all equivalent, right? They are Energy Star, you know, 15% more efficient for its class. But the configuration, the size, whether it's, you know, French door, side-by-side, top, bottom, whatever kind of configuration, some of them still end up using 50% 
more energy than another, even though they're both energy star, right? And I think it's kind of the same with WaterSense has their minimum spec. You can buy a WaterSense faucet that's 1.5, and you can buy a WaterSense labeled faucet that's 1.0, and maybe you want to buy the 1.0. Okay. Okay. And there's some good um, companies out there that have showrooms where you can actually test some of the, the fixtures. Toilets are a little bit more tricky, I'd say. You know, <laughs> go, go to your friends' houses, go to some restaurants, whatever. You know, t- take some notes if, you, if there's one that you like. But um, at least for for faucets, it's very easy to put in a low flow aerator, and they're very inexpensive. So yeah. you can kind of like you know buy a range and then test them out and and find one that works for you and for the fixture. So in our Connecticut office, I really don't like the aerators in the bathrooms. I assume it's the same in the women's room. I've never noticed. It it just takes, maybe I'm the only one. Dylan's shaking his head. I mentioned it to Zoller, of all people. How low are they? I I don't know what it is, but it just takes longer. It just takes longer to rinse. Do you use foam soap? Because none of these things operate in a vacuum. Like You have to use the foaming hand soap where you're supposed to apply it to dry hands, rub it in, do your 20 seconds, and then rinse it. But if you use the old kind of soap, rinsing that stuff off with low flow is like, is way too much. I do not use foam soap. Well, Rob, I can fix this for you. <laughs> Our next podcast. All right, closing thoughts on water. All right. Then next is me, since Guy 3 wants to go last. So I was thinking about what I do in my house, what I've done. I've done some insulation, I've done air sealing, I've done HVAC improvements. But the thing I think that that made me buy the house was the location. I bought my house and it's been it's been almost exactly 21 years, which blows my mind. But I bought it within a half a mile, about a half a mile from the train station. I can walk to the train station, I can take the train to work, and I can walk to the office from the train station on the other end. And that is why I bought my house. And I kind of held out for, there were, other, there were other houses for sale in the same town, but it was like two and a half miles away. That's not, that's not a good walk. I held out for this house, and it's, I have no regrets. I'm right downtown in a small town. I'm not a city guy at all. I've always lived, well, not always. I've lived in cities a few times, but more certainly suburban, if not rural. But it's, I live right in the middle of a small town. I can walk to, I certainly walk to the train station, I walk to the grocery store, I walk to, you know, to coffee shops, to coffee roasters, to yoga studio, to the library, to six restaurants or bars. I mean, it's, it's, it's just amazing to just be able to walk everywhere. And I didn't, I just bought it because of the train station. I didn't realize when I bought it how, I have, like once when I was, I remember once years ago, I was breaking my leaves and I got to remove the leaves from the driveway. So I moved my car around the corner. I parked the car around the corner, raked up all the leaves. A week later, I went to drive somewhere. It's like, oh my God, where the hell is my car? <laughs> I, had, I had forgotten. I didn't use my car for a week. So it was still parked around the corner. It was still there. It was, it was nice. So this, this I, I didn't, I, I know it's a s- sustainability thing. I was just thinking about convenience, but it's it's made a big difference. And I crunched, I mean, I crunched some numbers. In the 21 years, if I take the train to the office twice a week, which on average is easy in the, in the last 21 years, that saved, that would have saved 105,000 miles on a car. Wow. Wow. 
3,200 gallons of gasoline wow. or diesel. I had a diesel car for a while. And 62,000 pounds of carbon dioxide. <laughs> nice. So it's, it's funny. I mean, it's so convenient. And that's, what, that's why I did it. I did it for convenience. But it's, it's really a meaningful you know, energy, energy and carbon savings thing. And I don't know. It kind of hit home because I'm, I'm all about building systems and HVAC. But that's probably the most meaningful thing I've done is living in a place where I don't need to drive. Um, unless I go to Maine or Massachusetts, which I do. Quite often, really. (laughs) (laughs) Well, up until you said that, I was going to say we were very similar because when, which is shocking, right, that we'd be similar. (laughs) But when you hired me when I was about half the age that you are now, I made very similar (laughs) decisions. This is a puzzle, write this down. This This is a riddle for anyone paying attention. Um, Made very similar decisions. Like I sold my car. I bought a condo right by the train station, took the train to South Norwalk, a 50-minute train ride. It was awesome. Didn't need the car. Um, but then eventually got married, you know, bought a house in the suburbs, had kids. We tried to be a one-car household for a while, but that didn't work. So I think we've done what we can. Again, I feel like what you guys do is kind of like aspirational goals. I kind of am doing like the mainstream, what most people have available to them. We both have hybrids now. Maybe the best thing I've ever done is get my husband from his Dodge Durango down to a hybrid. He actually drives my Prius reluctantly to work. <laughs> Um, but he will have an electric car in September, right? We put in a smart charger. We're going to have an electric car soon. Um, so in terms of transportation, made a similar idea, then backtracked on that, doing the best we can now. But I think the most exciting thing that we've ever done related to transportation is about resiliency. We use my Prius as our home's backup generator. And so there's this cool inverter that you can have um, associated with your your car, a hybrid, any kind of hybrid Prius, Lexus, any kind of hybrid engine can uh, work with this inverter. A mechanic has to put in a special cord. You hook it up to the inverter, and it creates, you know, power. And I have a two-kilowatt inverter. I had an electrician give me a transfer switch so I can just turn on my Prius, plug it into the house. I have pre-selected circuits. Um, so it's really cool. It's related to transportation and housing, so that's why. There you go. Fit it in there. I try and fit it in whatever I can. I mean, are, is it is this a big selling point? Do you, do does anybody have an idea for, you know, lo, I mean, location to transit. I mean, you, I know you get lead points for it, but is it a big selling point for apartments for developments? I think for sure, yeah. and I think that's what I have to imagine that that is in part what is driving a lot of the revitalization of a lot of. Cities, towns, uh, you know, it's not just major cities. I think there's a lot of, uh, you know, kind of second tier and and smaller towns and cities that are seeing um, more of a revitalization of um, downtown living and people wanting to be able to walk places. And it's not just the convenience factor. I think it's the socialization factor and seeing people outside and being close to nature and getting fresh air, all of those things we have realized are important for our well-being and I think even more so now with COVID though I think they're you know the last two years there's been a little bit of a reversal in in some of the the trends you know in moving downtown and I think a lot of cities you know DC included are kind of holding their breath and saying what's going to happen what's going to happen with multifamily development what's going to happen to our downtowns Um, you know a lot of that is still being figured out but I think that what hasn't been lost is that we realize that we do need the 
you know, that kind of socialization and, and the, the value of being able to walk to places, see people, be, you know, have, have access to nature. Um, I, I know for myself, I, I bike to work. Um, it's about, I don't know, 15, 20 minutes. I have, I have the luxury of being able to live pretty close to the office. And there's plenty of days where I'm like, oh, I really don't feel like biking. And about halfway through, I'm like, this is awesome because it, you know, it brings me, it makes me be like mindful of just this activity. I have to pay attention to what I'm doing. I have to, you know, just like be focused on, on the bike ride and, you know, obviously get a little bit of exercise. But I notice that going into the office on those days, I'm like just much more, um, focused. And mm. I think, you know, part of that is, is certainly, you know, the office environment versus the home environment. But I really think a large part of that is like that separation and also just the like activity and like getting my blood pumping and everything and, and my bike ride. It's awesome. I love it. Nice. Well, I think I'm lazier than all of you because I have only bought houses that you can see from the office. <laughs> Slash see the office from my houses. And you still rarely come into the office. <laughs> <laughs> but that was really, that was the condition. I grew up in a small town riding my bike to the grocery store before every meal because I think, in hindsight, I thought my mom just was a bad grocery shopper. Now I realized she was just getting us out of the house. Oh, so we were a meal-to-meal right. -meal shopper type of family. And... Uh, then I've lived in New York City for eight years. Obviously, you know, you walked everything in your neighborhood. And that's what I really wanted when we looked to move to Norwalk, where you could kind of, you know, have it all. And I think people were sort of surprised that you're moving out of the city and choosing to live in a very urban area where, yes, you have your own single-family home, but you're 15 feet from the next house. Um, and people were sort of astonished by that. But I can still walk to the post office, the library, the grocery store, my office, the train, and a bunch of bars and restaurants, and that was sort of a top priority for me. Um, and you're one car now. We are one car, yeah. And and I, in in all honesty, I think you go through different life phases, right? Like I started walking a lot less when we had a baby and then a toddler, and there was adding the even though we we initially chose a daycare that we could walk to. Um, the time and the stroller and to either drop them off at daycare and then walk down the hill to work and then with the empty stroller and walk back, like we started driving. But at least it's a short drive, <laughs> was what I told myself. <laughs> yep, very um, short, very short. And then daycare moved further away and so that we kind of lost, you know, that ability. So now we drive to work so that we have the car to do the daycare pickup afterward. But that might not be... Forever. And when one of us has the car, the other person can still do the walking. And it was more just like having that option was always really important to me. Slash being able to safely go have more than one or three drinks <laughs> and toddle yourself home. Yeah. You know, yep. that's always... Uh, that's convenient. It's convenient. It's definitely convenient. It's safe. Get exercise. All of yep. those things. I will say the family cargo bike boom. Well, e cargo e-bike boom in DC right now it's like exploding maybe it's just our circle because we you know we have young kids and everybody is always is all they talk about is they're comparing their e-bike options because that is like far and away the best way to get around the city because the traffic is terrible right now metro is just like 
out of commission. So yeah, e-biking is the e-biking way to go. Is where it's at. Cool. I don't get yourself to the playground and the splash pad and the wherever else. <laughs> I'm not sure. I've seen a cargo e-bike. Really? And, oh yeah. man, I could like step outside and take a picture of four of them. <laughs> wow. <laughs> it's interesting. I mean, is that but, a climate thing versus you know New England versus DC? Somewhat, well, or? when you've got so we have we we also have an e-bike, and so for those days where I'm like when I'm really lazy, like I said, you know, and I really don't feel like biking to work, I will e-bike. Or the summer when it's 100 degrees, I will e-bike. Um, but ours isn't the cargo e-bike; we ha- attach a, a trailer. But our kids now are five and seven, and so like a hundred pound a kid plus the trailer, it's very heavy. This happened to me. The, the battery, we had not charged it because we weren't planning to take the e-bike out. <laughs> we took the kids out, went downtown, came back, up, and I live uphill. So um, battery died mid-hill. My husband's already like on his fixie way oh, ahead no. of us. <laughs> and I'm pulling 150 pounds <laughs> up the hill. So it's more just with the weight of the kids, I think. It was, it was, um, it was hard. I'll say that. It was hard. But yeah, maybe a climate thing. I mean, but I think it's a hill thing too because we have some hills here. So uh, one thing, like transportation, the EV picture, Guy 3 may have a different thought than me. But I I, I looked at, I don't have an EV. I have a gas vehicle. I want to be able to go 300 miles, 500 miles in a day. And I do that embarrassingly often. But when I'm home, I don't use it much at all. <laughs> but so just using grid electricity, the grid mix in Connecticut, I would say compared to a 35 mile per gallon car, 15% less CO2 emissions with the EV than the car. And cheaper. And, no, 50% more expensive to run the EV if you use just normal 20, using 460 per gallon gasoline and 20 cents per kilowatt hour. And DC is pretty similar on the CO2 emissions for for grid, just the typical grid mix. Like if you if if it were at night and you're using off-peak rates and baseload electric, you know, right. m- maybe maybe it's a different a different story. But I'm not convinced that like if you're in Vermont where it's all hydro and maybe a little bit of nuclear and some wind I get it, but I'm I'm not sold on the CO2 advantages of EVs yet. Well, in my situation where I have a big solar array, I have battery backup, I have an electric car charger, and yet I still have no electric <laughs> vehicle, so I don't even know if it works. But, you know, when you're putting in the whole solar system at once, you're like, ah, what's another couple hundred bucks, and you get the tax rebate, so you, you, you do it all at once, thinking you're going to get an electric vehicle. Right. Which, number one, my timing being completing this solar install in 2020 couldn't have been worse because you can't, like, you can hardly get an electric vehicle right now unless you plan quite, quite far in advance. Yep. But the main challenge I have is I have a 2016 Prius, which is nowhere near the end of its useful life for me. And so... And you get 50 plus miles per gallon, I right? Get f- it's, yep, I get 50... Uh, well, guy through was just asking you what my average is. I get about 50. Say you get 58, more. something like that maybe, um, on average miles per gallon, maybe a little more. I do a lot of city driving, so 
more in that instance. So I just, you know, I can't make the, it's, for me, it's the embodied carbon issue, right? Like it would make, it would make good sense for me. Oh, and by the way, my, I'm, I'm buying electricity. I buy it a little bit less, maybe more like 17, 16 cents, but I am selling it at four. So actually for my excess, because I am 38% net positive, it would make really good sense to be putting that into a vehicle, which is partly why our system is sized the way that it is. Because I have disadvantage disadvantages, <laughs> I have poor, I have a poor electric sell back, you know, yeah, situation. Right, right. No time of use pricing, like nothing to work to my advantage in that way. So it would be the perfect use, but I certainly can't make the embodied carbon justification to get a new vehicle when I've got a pretty good one. I, I see a market it. opportunity. You should like. Is there some kind of like EV charging? Oh, you for, could sell it. That you could like get it on the market station. and like people come over and charge at your house. And then my you'd... neighbor across the street got one. I was like, oh, you can come over here and charge it. Yeah. Sell it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nice. There's nice. got to be, there's got to be like some like reseller of this. Right. There would be. I mean, I also have the challenge of having too much crap in my garage for anyone to actually park their vehicle in there <laughs> in order to charge it. Well, that's more of a hopefully a short term issue. Well, we'll have to compare notes, Rob, because I trust your math, but when I did the math, I was saving greenhouse gas emissions here in Connecticut by going to the electric vehicle and, and, and saving money mm, over both our hybrids. Was that with of like time of use rates? Time of use, mine is nighttime. 18 cents, again, because I have solar panels, I have a time of use rate. Okay, so okay. at night, 18 cents per kilowatt hour. Um, I guess I'm trusting the EPA rated, you know, that says about 30 kilowatt hours for 100 miles. So maybe that's where we're off that's, on our numbers. No, that's pretty similar. Okay. Yeah, so we'll check our math similar. then. All right. We'll see. But for us, it, it looks like it's going to be cheaper than gas to, to drive an electric vehicle and better for greenhouse gas emissions. So we'll check our notes and okay. see who's better at math. Very good. So we had to pause recording while some very loud lawnmowers were outside. Uh, this was just as well as I spouted off some bogus information about electric cars that I had dug up. Gayathri actually wrote a blog post about this a while back. We'll have a link to that in the show notes. Much better info. Uh, generally, electric cars do indeed result in lower operating costs and lower carbon dioxide emissions, even with fairly efficient gasoline cars and even with the fairly uh, high electricity costs we have in the Northeast. When the lawn mowing was done, uh, Maureen talked a little bit about installing an electric car charger in their house. My neighbors were early Tesla buyers, and they still have that like free charging for life deal. Oh. Yeah. Otherwise, they would come over and charge theirs. But. Yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, I'm trying to avoid saying the Airbnb for EV charging, but like, does somebody not own this? Because I'm seriously going to do this. <laughs> <laughs> Guys, is a blast. Okay. Our last topic. Last topic. Well, I do I do want to mention that the three of us, Andrea, Mo, and myself, did not mention solar panels as our, our favorite thing, but I think it's just because it was a slam dunk, it works awesome, no regrets, and I think we just no think regrets. it's just the obvious choice. So we all have solar panels, work great. But the one I'm going to talk about is aero sealing. And so this is, uh, again, I have a code-compliant house, I didn't do anything fantastic. And then we all described ourselves as lazy at some point in this podcast. I feel like I'm the laziest. I wasn't going to renovate my house like you two did. And Rob is still doing renovations on his house. So I wasn't going to renovate. It was 
fairly brand new. But what like happens I said, is renovations never end. Right. No, so I bought it like ready to move in. Um, but what happens is with solar panels in Connecticut, to get access to the rebates, you have to do an energy assessment. So they bring in their their contractors, they kind of review your house, do blower doors, duct blaster. So the first uh, set of panels I put on were about four kilowatts. So when they did that, they could not do the duct blaster test. They couldn't test my ducts for air leakage. I didn't think anything of it. I was just doing it to check a box and get my rebate and move on. We invited uh, the HERS Raiders from SWA to use my house as a, as a training house. And they realized, you know, there was issues with the house and, like, the ducts, and they couldn't get it up to pressure. They finally did a duct leakage test, and it was astronomical in the duct leakage. It, all the ducts are in conditioned space. Somehow they figured out, like, they were actually able to do the test after a lot of troubleshooting. So it was very, very leaky. And how long ago was this? This is back in, like, probably 2014 or 15. And the house was built when? In 2008. We okay. were the first like home buyers of it. It shot there is like when the housing market crashed. We were like, one of the first home buyers. It was um, earlier than fourteen fifteen. No, somewhere around there. Okay. You so, have exterior some exterior ducts. Isn't your air handler like air handlers it, no. off the garage? It is off the garage, but it's in the conditioned space. It's a mechanical okay. closet within the conditioned space of the home. Okay. And so this this builder was a very code compliant builder. Didn't want to do anything special. He gave me like an Energy Star furnace, and he swapped my storage water heater for a tankless because I ran that gas line and everything was propane. So he that was part of the closing deal. Like he was going to swap that for for tankless, but everything was in conditioned space. The ducts were all in conditioned space for some reason. I mean, back then the Connecticut code must have been I don't know the 2006 ICC. I don't know why he chose to put the ducts in conditioned space, but he did, but didn't seal them. So, we had so over- what you're saying is that he did better than probably most code compliant houses of the time. I think he no. gave me the no. He gave me the bells and whistles. He gave me the visible bells and whistles, right? So no, for but in terms of duct placement, that the fact that they are in conditioned space is sure, actually except accept- they had 400 cfm of leakage. Well, that is very very <laughs> typical. What I, what what I what I wanted to make sure everybody understands is that that is not uncommon whatsoever. No, sure. that's. Right. That's so normal. typical code builder gave me the visible upgrade, the, the energy typi- stuff. I, I wouldn't even just say like typical builder. Like this is a problem on all of our even high performance above code programs. Yeah. Duct leakage is a continuing problem. Excellent segue to how do we solve that, Andrea? We do AeroSeal. And I know you did this too. So in my house, to get the rebate, they come in and they do the test. And so they redid the same test at the, the HERS Raiders when we did our training day. They redid that test and they got the same numbers or so. And so they were able to get access to an aeroseal contractor. They came in, did the aerosealing, brought that number from, it was 448 down to 11 CFM of duct leakage. It's awesome. But wait, what is aeroseal? Aeroseal. I know Andrea knows this. It's a great this prompt. Is, this is not an infomercial. <laughs> come on. Well, no, what, come how, on. What are you, but what are you talking about? I don't know if, sure. if people, people don't know what you're, you're talking actually, about. You're actually exactly right. So aeroseal is this aerosol-based sealant. And so I, we're going to cue Mo because I know she uses this probably for the primary use, which is for air sealing of your home's envelope. But no, Rob's no, shaking du- his duct head. sealing was, that was first. the first. Yeah, absolutely. Aeroseal yeah. is the first. Yes. All right. Aero so aeroseal was... is the yeah, correct is the envelope. So let's say ducks came first. We're gonna nod our heads. We agree. Yes. Ducks were first. All ducks right. So ducks first. were first. So it's sealant instead of using mastic and tape and all this. This is an aerosolized sealant that you send into the ductwork. It's inside the ductwork. Seals up all the holes using your duct blaster to pressurize the ducts, and all the holes get filled with this amazing product. And it seals it really, really well. Again, down from like 448 down to 11 CFM of leakage. And Impressive. It's a, it's a water-based glue is what the product is made out of. So it's relatively benign 
in that, from that point of view. And it has no propellants. The propellant is you're forcing it with pressurized air. So unlike a lot of other, you know, wonderful building products that we use that tended to have these blowing agents that we also had to worry about, you don't have to worry about any nasty blowing agents that are contributing to global warming. But I would add, it's not quite... There's, there's no silver bullet in our industry, right? So I think it, it fills gaps of, I've heard a nickel, maybe a dime. So if you have major um, or, you know, minor uh, gaps, you, you will still need to seal those because it, you know, it, it can't just fill big holes. Right. Um, you're still going to need to seal those, do some level of, um, of sealing. So we kind of... Often, we, we kind of always go back and forth with some of our um, project teams on can we just use this and not have to do like this super enhanced duct sealing package and usually they come back to using this as kind of a they'll use the, the aero seal as a, a gap stop so if they haven't been able to hit their uh, their targets then they'll come in and, and do this um, instead of trying to like find out and seek all of these holes, but we definitely would still recommend doing um, some level of duct sealing before you would do if, you, if you're going to rely just on the AeroSeal. And I'm, I don't want to diss AeroSeal because it can have, I mean, I was amazed at how the reduction that Gaia 3 got. It was, it, was, it was amazing. But I've also seen, you know, new construction homes that don't use AeroSeal, that use mastic and tape, and they get, they get phenomenal sealing. Right. And and it really depends on where, like, I remember when I, like, again, I've been doing this a while, but like 20 years ago, working in Florida, where they use duckboard and flex in attics, which is, that's a problem, having all your ducks in attics. <laughs> that's a problem. But they got them tight. My God, they were tight. They were less, they were like, you could hardly measure leakage. It was like, I don't know, 30, it wasn't 11, but it was, you know, low double digits leakage. And I come to the, like the Bronx, and it's like, oh, 400 CFM of duct leakage with, with the galvanized, with the metal. It's like, it's just not part of the, the mindset. And the material is part of it, but it's like, nobody, nobody thought duct leakage was a thing. Nobody mm -hmm. th thought duct leakage was important. But if you're installing a new duct system, you absolutely can get to tight levels without the expense of going to AeroSeal. Right. Yeah. But in but, the retrofit situation yeah. like you're describing, or in the failure situation, or even in certain new construction applications like central shafts that are just like really hard to access, I mean, it's yeah. pretty amazing. Right on. I was, I was really skeptical. I, I really have been impressed. Like I've been wrong about a lot about a lot of things. <laughs> Aeroseal's that's just pie in the sky. It's so complicated. It's just no. Oh come on, that won't work. It yeah, it can One work. of the contractors I talked to in Connecticut is doing it primarily on new construction for code compliance. You just think that's his market. He hardly does it for existing. for the ducks for the ducks for the duck. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely like yeah. you can come up with like that cost benefit analysis of like. What is the cost to like do a super seal right. versus the cost of doing the aero seal and like. Where do you make that work? And especially in a production sense, you can like figure out. And even yeah, we definitely have some projects where we are testing, retesting, retesting, retesting the ducks because they <laughs> cannot get them to pass. Well, and you know, and if they had just done after that first fail, just done some air seal, they probably would have been in a better spot. I think one of the advantages of it is that you are dealing with a specialized contractor that that is what they do, as opposed to trying to get 
these other guys who are really more interested in just fitting ducks together to become duck sealing experts. I mean, you think the two would go hand in hand, but clearly they do not yeah. based on where we see the state of the industry. So in this case, you're able to like get somebody that you know for a fact knows what they're doing. And maybe that's just easier from the builder's point of view. Be like, I'm going to get a specialist. And so you did that's Aero Barrier. Point. So how was that experience? I did Aero Barrier on my do-over house, second home, when we had completed the air sealing of the exterior. So it's it's open to the stud walls. This is um, wood frame, uh, two-story, two-by-four studs. And we were totally gutted on the outside, or on the inside. On the outside, we'd installed um, continuous rigid, taped the seams. And was the siding on, Rob? The siding was on. When you did the aero barrier? When we did the aero barrier. Yeah, windows were yep. in siding with yep. it. Yep, yep. So it was basically just still open on the inside just before cavity insulation and drywall. And they come in and they set up these, you know, misting stations all over the house. Well, first they tape off all the stuff. They attempt to tape off, like, all of the windows and whatever so you don't get the gunk on it. We did still get a little bit of gook. It is, um, that's the technical term. <laughs> what is, is water-soluble. Gook is like a kind of a sticky little residue from the mist that was in the air. And um, we still have a little bit of gook on a few windows that were not taped perfectly. It comes off. It's water-based. It still, three years later, will come off. It just requires me to scrub at it, which I have elected not to do yet in all cases. <laughs> so they're misting this stuff around from um, various points in the house. The guys have to periodically, they're using a blower door to create the pressure to basically drive everything into the various nooks and crannies. It accumulates where the air is moving really quickly through the nooks and crannies and, and seals them up. We found that um, we thought we had already lined, done like a poly lining on the basement. Before we started this, we knew our house was about 5 ACH 50. Um, so at this current state that it was in, it was 5 ACH 50, which it has to be that tight or they can't do this. They cannot go into a super leaky old house and do aero barrier because they can't get it to pressurize, right? That, like Andrew was saying, how it can only seal gaps of a certain size. You kind of have to have already gotten, like, a lot of the big stuff. The big stuff, yeah. And what was interesting was you saw that it, the improvement kind of happened. There was sort of a big improvement reasonably quickly. I mean, it took, you know, like a half hour or something to get going. And then you really saw, like, the, the numbers. So we went from five. We started at five. We ended up... I think it was around 1.8 after wow. that. Our final number is about 1.6 or something. Um, but the last little bit goes very slowly, right? And at a certain point, you're just like, well, when do you want to? They're asking us kind of like, well, when do you want to call it? You know? And you're like, uh, I don't know. Like, how long do you guys have? You know? um, but it was, you know, all the point. I mean, it was just, you could see a little bit of the vapor coming out in some instances of the exterior of the house. The, um, the around, we left that chimney, got rid of the fireplace and the combustion, but left the chimney because it just seemed terribly disruptive to try to tear it all out. And there were junctures around there. The um, rubble foundation, it was most definitely coming out funky places in there, places where the foundation was touching on ledge. It was coming out around there. Uh, even though we had... We had a, you know, poly liner all kind of did the bathtub thing all around that basement. It was still finding ways around it. So that was super interesting was just to see the places where it was really taking effect. But the level of effort we would have had to go to, and here was another cool thing about it. 
our first house, we did spray foam. A lot of great things you could spay, say about spray foam, but I was looking for um, lower embodied carbon, lower greenhouse gas um, options this time around. So in this case, for the aero barrier, I think we ended up using about two gallons of this water-based paint-like, glue-like stuff to get that house from 5 ACH50 to 1.8 ACH50. Like, that just seems like a pretty good use of materials, and then it allowed us to put, you know, mineral bats in the cavities. We did have spray foam on the roof that was already in at that point because there was some conditions there that that just seemed like the best material for the job. But um, I think it was a great alternate combination that allowed us to get that tightness with the sort of a different set of materials than was available in 2012 or whenever we did our last renovation. Yeah, that would be a great solution. That We have similar issues with our attached row homes that all of the connection points, because, you know, a lot of the, the row houses have um, joists and things actually like running through them. And it's almost impossible without some kind of air, you know, like we, we also did um, spray foam without something there to be able to, to reduce that leakage between, just between the houses. Yeah. And that would be a great, you know, great product to just like, because there's just no getting all of these cracks and crevices. Everything would have to be unoccupied, wouldn't it? Absolutely. And the, the main use of Aero Barrier today is in um, apartment buildings where they basically don't bother with a whole lot of other air sealing, but they have to be able to pass the code level 3ACH50 that they'll come in after drywall but before anything else and do it at that point. You absolutely cannot do it when you have any appliances or mechanical equipment in or you will ruin your crap. And they told a story, our installers told a story about someone who worked in the industry who was convinced that he could sufficiently like tape off his, you know, clothes washer and whatever to <laughs> and and do this. <clears throat> and, you know, $4,000 later, uh, he had no appliances. So uh. But for on the duct side, that's okay. You can you can do the duct you can do the duct ceiling in an occupied in a house, occupied yep. furnished home. And you had like you had some crazy Gayathri crazy comfort improvements. Oh Is yeah, that- I was gonna say that before about the duct. So basically, some of the builders, even in the code world right now, you know, they complain about you know the ducts in condition space right now have to get tested. They don't see that as an energy leakage issue. And so for me, aero ceiling. All my decks were in conditioned space. And so getting that number from 400 down to 11 actually saved me energy, even though it's all in conditioned space. Because the way our home is built, you know, we're sending a lot of this air in multiple zones. And so it was just leaking in different zones. Yeah, I had, it's a three-story house. So the attic, the third floor level would be 80 degrees. And the basement level with AC running would be 55. And so it just, it was just the air handler was running a lot to get the, the air to where it needed to be. And so ever since aero sealing, it's a lot easier to maintain the first floor at the right temperature, and I don't see those giant swings. And so maybe my house is unique in the sense because it was multiple zones, and that's why this really had a big impact. Um, but it definitely saved energy having the ducts. No, I think that's right because zone. a lot of you know if you're having to always change the thermostat because you're uncomfortable in a certain room because your ducts are so leaky and it's not getting the air where it needs to go, then yeah, that's a big energy penalty because of the, the, the comfort issue. All right, we ran out of time. Any final thoughts <laughs> about duct leakage, about aero barrier, about aero seal? 
get a new construction, just get it right, get it tight. It's, I mean, I, I'm get happy. it tight, get it right, get it right, get it tight. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, there's a song. There's a rap song. <laughs> we'll put those I'm, in the show notes. I'm happy. While I'm rapping happy. this song. Oh God, <laughs> Dylan will probably do that now. <laughs> Where's my phone? Okay, it's Sorry. good. It, I mean, in new construction, I'm I'm glad the codes have addressed this. I don't know how rigorously they are enforced, but it's there. You know, it's there. So it, it's it's a it just makes sense. I mean, in new construction, there's so many things you can get right. And we know so much more now than we did 5, 10, 20 years ago. It's, it's crazy. Yep. All right. Any last thoughts? Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Andrea. Cool. Thanks, everybody. Thank you for listening. Thanks to Andrea, Maureen, and Gayathri for doing this. Thanks to Dylan Martello for helping with recording and editing. Buildings and Beyond is produced by Stephen Wonder Associates. We are focused on making buildings better, healthier, more efficient, more accessible, more resilient, more affordable. Uh, the list goes on. Check us out at swinter.com. That's swinter.com. We have offices in Boston, Connecticut, Manhattan, and Washington, D.C., and we are hiring in all our offices, and actually, in some cases, outside of our offices. Check out swinter.com slash careers if you are looking or if you know someone who's looking. There were 23 postings up on the careers page when I checked today. Show notes are available at swinter.com slash podcast. Uh, thank you very much for listening. 